Axis Mundi. So your uh, your day job is as a news editor, the San Diego Union Tribune, but you're an author who's written several great books. Uh, formerly or previously, you wrote Gangsters to Governors: The New Bosses of Gambling in America, which earned medals from the Independent Publish- Publishers Book Awards and the Next Generation Indie Book Awards in 2018. The book we're going to talk about today is Soul Winners: The Ascent of America's Evangelical Entrepreneurs. As listeners will know, this this book obviously hits home for me. Uh, I'm from Orange County. I've, I, I focus in my work a lot on the history of evangelicalism and white Christian nationalism in Orange County in the Southland. So it's just a real treat to get to sort of talk to you about this this book that really is in many ways sweeping in nature. You you really do take us on a historical tour de force of the ways that evangelicals uh, have been uh, not only entrepreneurial, but innovative in the ways that they have worked with uh, big business and other other uh, partners in industry to advance their message. And so let me start by asking you this. The book focuses on the, this relationship between big business and evangelical churches. Um, you really argue that there's kind of innovation on both sides. So I'm wondering, you know, if we think about evangelical leaders uh, in the 20th, 20th century, the 21st century, what do they get from partnering with big business? Well, when you when you have a, a large scale church or a television ministry, or you want to start a Bible institute or university, you know all that costs a lot of money. You know, you, you need you need capital, you need a lot of it. And these entrepreneurs, these evangelical entrepreneurs, you know, they they go to where the money is. So it's it's usually uh, wealthy businessmen, uh, large corporations, and and you see this. You know, the reason why I. I wanted to go back in history as this has been going on for more than this, well, more than a century. You go back to Dwight L. Moody, uh, his large scale crusades, revivals, or whatever you want to call them. I mean, that, those cost lots of money to advertise. You have to organize it. Uh, Billy Sunday, who came a little bit later, no church was large enough to hold the number of people who wanted to see him. So he had to build his own cathedrals, essentially. That costs a lot of money. And um, so he partnered up with people like John D. Rockefeller Jr. And uh, in, in his committees were stocked with, uh, with, with, with wealthy people. And that those are the people who have the money. And people like Billy Sunday, you know, he was uh, very skeptical of uh, government action. You know, he, he, he didn't like unions. He preached about that. He thought that, you know, they were tied to communism and they were, and he derided socialism. And those are the kind of messages that large, uh, that wealthy business people like to have disseminated. So they, so it's really a, a symbiotic relationship. You know, they they both got something from it from the other side, and and so they, uh, and then you see it obviously through Billy Graham and and then our contemporary uh, entrepreneurs as well. I, you really hit on something that was kind of my next question, which is okay. So I'm Billy Sunday. I've got this massive church. It's, I have so many followers. Uh, there's no Instagram at this point. So I actually need people to be in person and, um, I need a building and Hey, uh, Rockefeller, uh, says, Hey, let's do it. But you're going to put my people on your, on your elder board, on your committee, on your, uh, church governance, uh, policymaking decision uh, structures. So all of a sudden, I mean, here's my, here's my question. Let's just take Billy Sunday as this sort of early 20th century figure. And folks, if you're not familiar with Billy Sunday, just a, an enormous influence on uh, American religion in the in the early 20th century, uh, kind of a forerunner to some of the people you might be familiar with, Billy Graham or or Jerry Falwell or 
uh, Joel Osteen or, you know, or others. If I'm Billy Sunday, is it just out of nowhere, you know, that I decide unions are bad and government get out of my business? Or is it, is there a kind of, you know, quid pro quo here of like, hey, we'll finance your building, but we're going to need to make sure that your sermons really do include this idea that the government needs to get out of here, low taxes and uh, unions totally from the devil. Yeah, and some, yeah, I think some of it is, uh, it really is sort of baked into evangelicalism because it's such an individualistic uh, religion in that, in, in that it, it, it's great that you can, you know, a person can decide, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to convert and commit to Jesus today. I don't have to go through this long uh, period of study. There, there is something ingrained in evangelicals and it's so individual, individualistic and 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 I think that permeates into politics. Uh, and and Billy Sunday really exemplified that. I mean, he uh, you know at, at the at the time he was popular, there was a you know a the social gospel movement, and he derided any kind of government activity as just nonsense. You know, he just felt like businesses should be left to you know to do their own thing. And and so he was always at war with the liberal Protestants. You know, they there was a sense that they were. Uh, the liberals were in charge of all the seven, the, the important seminaries of the time. And, uh, and he was, uh, yeah, he, and he was, uh, yeah, he, he was a, an exponent of, uh, of individualism above all. And, uh, and so in terms of like where he got the idea for opposing unions, I just think that just fell in really neatly with his worldview. And, um, yeah, and, uh, and, and I think when you take money from a patron, you tend to take on you know, what the patron yeah. likes. So it's, uh, you know. There is a, there is a built-in resonance here, right? If, if you're a businessman who, who has a worldview that hard work and individualism lead to prosperity and, and a kind of capitalist payoff, and then you have uh, an individualist ethos uh, in your preaching and your understanding of the Christian gospel, then uh, I, I think people should just take away, right? Very easily that there's a reason that this relationship has been so symbiotic for so long in the United States. One of the periods that I am really interested in and I focus in on my in my work in the Orange Wave and in my book is uh, the middle 20th century. And, you know, one of the things that I think some folks are aware of, but but maybe not totally, is, is that after World War II, there really is this kind of renaissance of pro-business, pro-capitalist and anti-communist Christianity, uh, especially in Southern California. I mean, you're in San Diego. I grew up in Orange County. So I'm just wondering, you know, what did the evangelical business marriage look like during like the Eisenhower years, just after World War II, you know, 1948, 1950, how is, is big business trying to really uh, cozy up in, in even more intimate ways to evangelical Christianity? Yeah, I think what do you see in the Eisenhower years is just, is a real marriage of, uh, you know, Americanism, uh, pro, uh, pro capitalism. And it, it, it tied in so neatly with, uh, with evangelicals and, you know, evangelicals really were, were so, uh, they were just primed because during World War II, you had the, they were starting to organize better. You had the, the foundation of the National Association of Evangelicals, that was in 1943. You had Youth for Christ, which is how Billy Graham got started in the forties. Captain's Crusade for Christ came you know, later in the forties. So all those parachurch organizations were just, were so, uh, they, they, they were, they were primed, you know, and they, and they, and they worked so closely with, um, uh, with, with, uh, with these, these large scale preachers like Billy Graham and Laurel Roberts, uh, you know, in the fifties. And I think the country was just, uh, it, it, 
it was in, it really was unblocked in this battle with the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was was seen as uh, you know anti-religion, you know, religion is the opiate of the people, uh, anti uh, anti capitalism, and uh, so it, so it, it really it, that that was really where you saw this uh, this Americanism and Christianity so closely tied. You know, and Eisenhower uh, supported that. He was very close to Billy Graham. Uh, he was like. Eisenhower was actually baptized after he was uh, elected in 1952, and Billy Graham helped him find a church in Washington, and that's where we saw under God inserted inserted into the pledge of allegiance, and uh, saw this in the National Prayer Breakfast started when early in Eisenhower's career, and that was the the ultimate marriage of big business and politics. So I think it, just, it was just the era of the of the the Cold War and the and the and just that. Uh, that, that battle between capitalism and communism and religion and anti-religion that was manifesting then. It really is a fascinating time because you, this is, I mean, most folks don't realize like, uh, I mean, Eisenhower himself is, is fascinating. As you say, he has yeah. this sort of religious renewal as president. I mean, yeah. can you imagine if, I know if, if Joe Biden or Kamala Harris announced today that, Oh, I'm getting baptized next week. Everyone. I mean, it were, uh, uh, the country would lose its mind, but you know Eisenhower got baptized. Uh, in God we trust. All of the all of the uh, one nation under God. This is, and I think what you're point out and what your book really shows us is that, and this is something obviously we talk about every week on the show. But the Americanism and the Christianity are just so entangled during this period. It's not like they hadn't been before, but it just seems so, like rich at this point it's just like overwhelming in terms of the flag and the cross they go together to be a real american is to be pro-capitalist pro-private property pro-god not the godless communist and it, and it's just amazing how in your book you really show us like capitalism and christianity are just seen as like natural allies you know billy graham talks about private properties is, is that's what jesus talks about in the sermon on the mount and it's like well you know really does he i i thought i'd read that i hadn't found that part um so it really is a quite fascinating time yeah, i think yeah and you, and you look over and over again all, you know i studied people like billy graham Oral roberts uh and over and over again billy graham wants to start a magazine you know j howard Pugh. He, yeah he stuck exactly. in, he, it was a conservative uh christian he He's the one who bankrolled that magazine and kept it going. And it's still Christianity Today is still, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a really, it's a great magazine, but it's like that the reason why it exists is because J. Howard Pugh stepped up to, uh, to fund it. But over and over again, his career, Billy Graham wants to go on TV. He's a businessman to help him, uh, you know, an oil man, Sid Richardson helped him, uh, meet Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, I mean, it's, it's so remarkable every year they want to, they want to start a Bible Institute. They want to. They want to build a larger church, and there's always there's always a rich person there to help them along, and it's always somebody who believes, uh, you know, believes in big business, and uh, it, it's 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 so interesting. Right? Every every step of the way, that they, they, these entrepreneurs are helped by wealthy individuals or wealthy corporations. I, I you know I get asked almost every week, hey, is there a religious left? Is there a Christian left? And I say, of course there is, but one of the things we have to realize is like the funding is so different. Like, you know, if yeah. we take everything you're showing us in your book, the idea that uh, folks on the religious left would would just have billionaires who are like, yeah, let us, you know, sort of just bankroll everything you're up to. It's just not going to happen and perhaps would not be welcome in most cases because they wouldn't want that money. 
Whereas on it, it, throughout American evangelical history, as you just said, business interest after business interest, whether it's starting Christianity today, whether it's bankrolling uh, Billy Graham's revivals, whether it's uh, Billy Sunday, it it just never stops in terms of the episodes of this. Let's come into the the into the present, and I think many folks listening will be familiar with the non-denominational church. A lot of you know memes about this online. The mega church that isn't connected, uh, at least in name, to a denomination. Maybe if we go back through their documents, they're Southern Baptist or they're something else. But we, you know, most of us know how this works, right? Casual clothes, a cool guy pastor. Maybe it's a Hawaiian shirt. Maybe it's skinny jeans, a latte, uh, rock music, some lasers, perhaps in the worship space. Kids on a rock climbing wall. I don't know. You know, all of all of the 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 cool stuff. What most folks won't know is just how this phenomenon is m as much a product of business principles as anything else. You know, can you help us understand that? How is a mega church really the product of like modern day business strategies and business ideas uh, more than perhaps theology or, you know, biblical doctrine? Yeah, well, especially the non-denominational non churches, you know, they, they have to uh, rise and fall on their own. You know, they don't have, they don't have a, a structure to, to, to lean on. So they, so they really are a startup churches. You know, they have to look at their, uh, their market, you know, who are they serving and what do people want? And they have to, they, they really strive to meet people where they are. And, uh, and, and, uh, so they look at the, they, they, they try to find what the need is in their market and they, and they try to fill it just like any business does. Um, you give people what, uh, what they want. So if people want to have, uh, you know, a, a, a Starbucks style, uh, coffee bar, and they want to have, uh, you know, a, a 12 piece, uh, praise band, and they want to have uh, stadium style or theater style seating, or they want a pastor who's relaxed and, uh, there's no dress code. And, and it's just a, a guy talking about being a great dad you know, not, uh, or tips on how to have a, have a, have a good marriage. You know, that's, uh, they, re they really have tried, they really tried hard to uh, to study what people want in a church and what they don't want. You know, they, a lot of people, you know, and they, go, and they also go after the largest group is people who are unchurched, you know, that's, that's their target. So they look, they really go for the people that maybe they were a Christian, but they fell away or they never went to a church. So the, the, that's their, their target, the target audience. And that's the largest audience there is, you know, especially today, you know, with the, the rise in the, of the religious nuns, you know, uh, so, um, uh, so that, yeah, they really, they, it's just, it's marketing. It's, they know how to advertise, you know, they're not afraid to try new things. They're not trying, they, they, you know, during the pandemic, you know, a lot of these, uh, churches were, were, they were set up pretty well because they had, they already had a very robust social media channels. They, they already had their services online that you could, you could stream, uh, anywhere. They know how to reach people and they, and they are very good at it. I actually, as far as my research, I went to nine different churches. Uh, so right ranging from the, the uh, Rock church here in, uh, in San Diego, I went to the Saddleback church, uh, and some smaller forefront churches. And they were, it was just fascinating to, to go there and see, you know, I, I just went as an observer and I participated and just, you know, sometimes I got a tour of the church if I got there early and they would, they were, they were very proud of their, their rock climbing walls, like you say, or the coffee bars and. They want people to come to, to come not just on Sunday morning, but come seven days a week. You know, they, yeah. A lot of these places have gymnasiums. They've got kids programs. They've got 
they've got all kinds of Bible study uh, groups and then they have, they have groups at home, you know, you can, uh, that's actually kind of the secret sauce. A lot of these mega churches are these small groups that meet every week and, uh, and, uh, that's where you build that, build those connections to the church. You don't really know what you can believe because there's so many sources saying so many different things. It's weakening trust between the media and the, the audience. I'm pretty sure that I have shared fake news, but I didn't realize it until someone corrected me. No one knows what to trust and what not to trust anymore. Misinformation, a threat to democracy, public health, and maybe even the human species as a whole. Or is it? What does this word really mean? And why has it become such a hot topic? I'm Dr. Susanna Crockford, an anthropologist who studies conspiracy theories and the ways they affect religious, spiritual, and other communities. While there is a lot of talk about misinformation floating around, there are a few trustworthy sources where you can learn what it is and how it works in yoga communities, online message boards, wellness spaces, church congregations, and of course, social media. Come for the wacky ideas about biohacking and election rigging, stay for the research on the effects of these ideas on public health and democracy. Misinformation debuts May 24th, 2024, and episodes will be released weekly. Find it anywhere you get your podcasts, because misinformation matters. See you soon. I uh, I want to focus on on Rick Warren Saddleback Church uh, because I you know I, I grew up just half an hour from there uh, and when I was in ministry in the early two thousands it was an enormous influence in the region and and really across the country and friends if you're not familiar with Saddleback Church it's one of the largest churches in the country Rick Warren is one of the most influential pastors in the country uh, you know has has hosted presidents has uh, has been somebody who's really become a face of American Christianity at certain times. And uh, he wrote this book called The Purpose Driven Life. And it was really like, here's your five purposes for life, for living. And it was for you, Christian. And I'll just be honest, David, when I was in ministry, everybody at my church, every pastor was reading that book. And they were all like, I kind of wish we were Saddleback Church. I wish we could be them. And, you know, uh, if, if, and, and I would have like colleagues of fellow pastors who would go to Saddleback and be like, all right, what do they do? How do they do it? You know, let's take one of their seminars. Let's see if we can't reproduce the secret sauce. What's the ingredient, right? And what I realized, I'm not going to lie, just me being the curmudgeon professorial type that I am, I I picked up the Purpose Driven Life in 2000, whatever it was, four, and I got about 10 pages in. And here's my, here was my reaction is, this is a business self-help book with Christian words inserted. And I don't want to read it because I want to be, and at the time I was like, I want to be a hardcore disciple of Jesus. I don't want to get inspired by Tony Robbins. And the reason I bring that up is because to me, that exemplifies the whole approach of the megachurch non-denominational ethos is let's take principles that work in business and let's appeal to customers. And if we can just get the most customers, that will be success. So yes, we have to appeal to them and their needs, and hopefully they will want to come here and we'll get money, we'll get donations, we'll get big business interests, and we'll be off and running. Is that fair? I mean, am, am I just a sort of, you know, curmudgeonly kind of uh, critical guy? When you're researched, does that line up? That basically it's almost like it's better to get an MBA, to get an MDiv, if you want to be successful as a megachurch pastor. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. I mean, they, I think these pastors do, they, they really style themselves as CEOs or, uh, you know, or as much as they, as much as secret pastors. You know, and, and you really, if you, if you're working at that kind of scale, you almost have to be a CEO. You're overseeing, you know, a very, everything style backstage, a very large campus and their main campus is in Lake Forest. They have satellite campuses around Southern California. Uh, it, it, it's a large operation. It's, it's, you're, you have hundreds of groups, you've got a school, you've got, uh, so many ministries so you have, you have to be on social media. Um, so there, there's, there's a lot to, there's a lot to it and it's a large organization. And then if you're, if your goal is to grow, then you're constantly have, you're constantly looking for the next thing, you know, you're looking for the next market to, to tap. So uh, I think that is fair that they do, they do see themselves as CEOs and in Warren's case, you know, he, he was really influenced by Peter Drucker. You know, you might know he's the management guru, uh, kind of the founder of management theory. And, you know, he was one of his real guiding stars, you know, in starting sales back because Drucker taught that, you know, that nonprofits often lack a clear mission, you know, because they don't have a bottom line. We also felt like that churches, especially, you know, they should stop doing things that don't work. You know, don't try to maintain yesterday. And that's what a lot of churches, a lot of businesses do. They try to preserve what worked in the past. And then they, by doing that, you don't, you're not, you're not able to change and grow. So, so Warren took that to heart. And he, so if he took, if he had a ministry that started, it didn't work well, he stopped it, you know, yeah. and he wasn't afraid to, to, uh, to try new things and to change. And, uh, and so. I thought that was interesting. This, you know, you, know, you mentioned the purpose, purpose driven life. You know, uh, Warren before that he wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Church. You know, yeah. which is which is a, basically a blueprint for uh, for pastors to start basically started Saddleback type church. And because uh, by that time, you know, even in the nineties, that Saddleback was a oh yeah really pro- really prominent church. You see, yeah, he's a fascinating Warren's a really fascinating character. Well, I had the purpose driven church and I was a youth minister back then. And, okay. uh, and I, I remember reading it and thinking, okay, so this is, and every don't get, I mean, I'm not lying. Everybody around me doing youth ministry was like, okay, purpose driven church. And we're going to organize our, our, our ministry according to the five purposes he gives. And we're going to every, everything we do will. And it was really like watching people, um, who felt like they had found a business guru, a business magician. Um, and they were just willing to follow the principles carte blanche because obviously they worked because he had the most customers, you know? Um, and I think that's for me, something that's really important to point out. I'll just say too, and I'll just throw this in, this is a kind of interjection, but I think once we get to the Trump years, a lot of what you show in the book about big business and the bankrolling of many of these evangelical institutions, whether, um, it's going back to you know, the middle 20th century or all the way to, you know, the Trump, the Trump era. If you are the leader of a church of 10,000, 20,000, if you have been really uh, given the platform by way of mega donors who you, whose politics, you know, very well line up with MAGA and Trump or whatever, it's really hard for you to get up on that stage and condemn that stuff. And so I think a lot of people are mystified. Like when are the mega church pastors going to say that enough's enough? And I think it's basically like saying, you know, uh, a CEO coming out and saying that all the investors uh, and all the people that were the angel kind of funders of the of the startup are uh, immoral and uh, ruining everything. And that was just never going to happen because of those reasons. I mean, I think 
this is a real drawback. If you're going to align yourself with big business, you are tied to big business and you're tied to customers. And a, a lot of people would say that it's really hard to be true to uh, whatever you you know is Christian principles or Christian gospel because you're really tied to that, you know, to that set of kind of uh, actors. I mean, does that sound fair to you? I mean, you know, given everything you've looked at? Yeah, I think what we what we what we really see in the Trump here is is, is, is so much of this is about power. You know, it's yeah. not about it's not about piety or or, or faith. And, and you know, I interviewed uh, Robert Jeffress, who's uh, the senior pastor of uh, First uh, Baptist Church in Dallas. So it's a it's a very very large church. You know, fifteen thousand members. He's got a radio program. He's on Fox News a lot. So he's a, he's a really well known. Pastor and I asked him, so what, you know, what, you're from Texas, you know, in, that, in 2016, you know, Ted Cruz was running, he's from, from your state. Why did you support Trump? You know, because he, Jeffers is one of the first uh, evangelical leaders to, to actually back Trump and he'd be a campaign with him in Iowa. And, uh, and, and Jeffers just said, I just thought Donald Trump had the best chance to beat Hillary Clinton. Like, that's yeah. it. There's not, there's not, there's not, it's, it's that, and I think people try to look for like, why, why? Are evangelicals going to support Trump this time, or why are they supporting? It's because they they thought he could win. And so then they asked about the Access Hollywood tape that came out, and why do you feel when that came out? When the uh, Trump, you know, thing all those vile things about women, and you know, Jeffers said I didn't like this, but it was enough to to give me the change to vote for Hillary yeah. Clinton. You know, it's yeah. just, and I think you see that over and over again. You know, what's going to be the thing that's going to? Is it going to be January sixth? Is it going to be? the latest thing that Trump says and that, and really, like you say, like that, that those bonds just will not break. Yeah. Yeah. As long well, as they, a lot, as long as they think that he can win, that that's the, that's the key. You know, if they think that DeSantis can win, then they'll, they'll go to him. Well, and, and I think a lot of people are mystified too, about this idea that we need a businessman to run the country, but you know, everything that we're talking about today really points us to the fact that there's a lot of Christians for a long time who have thought that Running your church like a business is the best way to do it. And getting the backing of big business to run your church is the best way to do it. So it's not really out of nowhere to say, well, we need this businessman who runs casinos and everything else to run the country. It, it actually is baked in. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, one of Trump's, uh, you know, his, his top spiritual advisor was Paula White, you know, was the, who was a pastor in Florida and she's a TV personality, prosperity gospel preacher. And you can, you can really see if you study the prosperity gospel and you tie it to Trump, I mean, that, that's a perfect marriage. You know, it's this, yeah. uh, this idea of you can, if you want something, just give money and it'll happen for you. And, and also she's, she's very telegenic you know, and she's a entrepreneur. She's a business person. Trump is also an entrepreneur. So you can just see how those, you know, they were, they they really were, were perfect for each other, um, for sure. And, uh, and she was probably as. I mean, she was had a role in the White House and uh, during the Trump years, and she was probably as influential an advisor that that, that we've seen yeah. since Stilly Graham and Richard Nixon. You know, I, I, I mean, she was she was very influential in the Trump in the Trump White House. Yeah, and uh, you know, I think this really points us to the pro prosperity gospel, which which I want to come back to. It also points to we did a whole series um, on the New Apostolic Reformation, and uh, the New Apostolic Reformation is is really. Paula uh, White Cain included uh, a kind of networked movement where you have a kind of charismatic leaders who are who are uh, bonded in a kind of spiritual oligarchy rather than denominations. And I think that movement really points us to 
the kind of ways that that business principles or growth principles work here. Uh, one of the founders of that movement is C. Peter Wagner, and and Wagner was a sociologist. He had a PhD, and and, and he studied you know how institutions grow, how uh, how they they prosper, and he he just basically said, let's do that with church growth, and 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 there you have it. So anyway, people listening uh, will be familiar with with all of that. Let's talk prosperity gospel here at the end. I, I've interviewed John Compton over at Chapman U University and Gerardo Marty, who are both just great researchers and, and voices on um, the Crystal Cathedral in Orange County, the development of the prosperity gospel in Southern California. We, of course, have um, you know a lot of uh, figures who represent that coming from this part of the country, but but elsewhere. You know, could you expand a little bit on what you just said? You know, the prosperity gospel is really kind of like the the crescendo of the the marriage between Christianity and big business in some sense. I, I think there's ways that we could actually talk about it being uh not, but you know, how do you see that relationship? Yeah, and that, that, you know, that goes back pretty far. Uh, it, you know, it's like but I read about Earl Roberts. So he he had a teaching called seed faith, which was the idea that believers need to give a donation and then they will receive something in return, just like when you, you, you put a seed in the ground and then you'll get a plant. And that was, that was his, 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 his teaching. And so he taught people that something good will happen to you. You can expect a miracle. And, uh, and th that was, that, that's a really powerful idea, uh, that people, uh, yeah, especially, you know, Royal Roberts had later in his career there, he was more of a television, uh, figure. So people that were watching at home and they see him and they. And they really developed like almost a personal relationship with him and they, you know, and he was great at direct mail. So he was, he, he was able to make people feel like that, that they were getting a personal letter from them. And so Royal Roberts really popularized a lot of that idea of seed faith, uh, into the prosperity gospel. And, you know, and you mentioned Joel Osteen earlier, he's probably the best known of the prosperity gospel preachers today. Uh, you know, Joel Osteen doesn't have any uh, pastoral or theological training. You know, he was his father was was uh, a Pentecostal pastor, and then when he he, he Osteen basically was a television producer for his father. He was that was his expertise. You know, for seventeen years he was in the control control room, which was actually like a good training for him because he's so he's so telegenic. But he teaches about about North uh, the prosperity gospel and all his books and his, uh, his t TV shows. And they all kind of promote this idea that you just have to, you just have to want something and pray for it. And then that it will happen. And then, and then explicitly like God will, will prosper you and your finances. If you, if you believe and, uh, yeah, Kenneth Copeland, another, another one that, uh, is, is, is I'm sure well known to your, to your listeners. Uh, he's, you know, he has his own private, uh, you know, airstrip and outside of Fort Worth, Texas, you know, he's, uh, he's, he's on TV all the time. You know, I think we, we live in such an aspirational culture, you know, in America. And I think, you know, a lot of people, when I did this book, they're like, well, you know, how can these pastors take all the, you know, they, they, they live in, well, Joe Lewis, he lives in a $12 million mansion in Houston. You know, Copeland has private, you know, Gulfstream jet, you know, how can all these people take money? And I, and I said, well, I think you, you know, it, People look up to, you know, their followers looked up to them and think, well, if, if, if they made it, then I can make it too. If I just believe, believe hard enough and I give the money regularly, then good things will happen. I mean, I will have a thousand dollars sneakers as well. And I will, I will be, uh, I will, I will be enriched uh, by, you know, by faith. And it's a, it's a really powerful idea. You know, it's a, it, it can be a really uh, destructive one as well. 
Yeah, just as we close here, I was just it just really hitting me that you know we talk a lot on this show about the ways that Christian nationalists, especially, but but many many folks don't really want to question the systems that really govern our our lives, whether they're economic or political or or cultural, uh, be, and, and the inequalities built into them because it would disrupt those systems. It would cause the need to rethink them, maybe uh, disassemble, reassemble, etc. And, you know, we talk a lot about that when it comes to race and gender uh, and sexuality, when it comes to, you know, conservative Christians in the United States. But, uh, you know, I think this discussion today should really highlight for folks that one of the reasons that that is so difficult for prominent evangelical pastors is that, you know, questioning the capitalist system would basically question the very means by which they gain their platform. And so to do that uh, is not just something that perhaps ideologically or theologically they're opposed to, but just personally, it's like, that's my meal ticket. That's how, you know, it's business principles that makes Rick Warren into Rick Warren. It's capitalism that makes Joel Osteen into the very rich man that he is. And so questioning that, uh, along with the racial dimensions of capitalism um, and uh, the other forms of inequality that come with it, uh, just doesn't make sense from a personal interest standpoint, you know? And and I think I just, I want to make sure people kind of see that uh, before we go. So. Um, yeah. Well, David, I just want to say thank you for your time and thank you for uh, this book that really does provide a kind of sweeping view of the ways that evangelicals have aligned with big business. But I, I, one of the things I will say, too, is that it shows the the innovation that, the, you know, it's easy to think of of, of folks as uh, in churches and other places as, uh, and and this is not me, but this is a common misconception that they're not sophisticated, that they're not um, kind of uh, really uh, thinking through how to do things. And my argument would be, no, in fact, their ability to innovate, their ability to adapt, their ability to use media is actually well beyond uh, most uh, folks who would be in some ways on the other side of the aisle from them. So your book really shows us that. Um, where are uh, ways that people can link up with you and um, and the book, Soul Winners? Well, it's available in, in, in all the booksellers online, all the usual spots. Uh, I, I have my own website, davidclaryauthor.com. I'm also on Twitter. Uh, so, I'll, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm really glad to have this opportunity to talk to you, Brad. And I am tempted to ask you where the best burrito is in, in San Diego and especially the best California or otherwise known as San Diego burrito. <laughs> with French fries in it, but I don't want to get you in trouble or fired. So, um, yeah, it's, a, it's a controversial topic. <laughs> You're going to get letters at the Tribune about that. So I'm going to just ask you offline about it. But uh, anyway, all right, folks. Um, thank you. Thank you for listening. As always, find us at Straight White JC. Find me at Bradley Onishi. Um, I will be uh, at Santa Clara University February 23rd. If you'd like to come hang out and uh, hear me talk about my new book, we'll be in Santa Barbara on February 20 at Chaucer's Bookstore. We'll be in Solvang, which is uh, right near Santa Barbara on February 19. So if any of those places are near you, come come hang out, come say hello and talk about the very cheery topic of Christian nationalism. Other than that, we'll be back later this week uh, with the weekly roundup and other stuff. We can always use your help on PayPal and Patreon. You can see that in our, our show notes. Thanks for being here. We'll catch you next time. This has been an Irreverent Media Podcast.